This week on the Back Table Podcast. Like, you got to be reading these papers. You know, if you haven't read, you know, this will be my PSA to anybody <laughs> who does listen to this. If you haven't read New England Journal of Medicine article, which was the, um, the Atezo-Bev trial, just type that in, you'll see it. If you haven't read that and are somewhat knowledgeable about it, you know, I don't see how you can call yourself like an HCC expert because that's where it's moving. And you need, you need to be able to be literate in that stuff. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Backtable Podcast. If you are a new listener, welcome. For our regular listeners, welcome back and thank you for listening. Backtable is a podcast committed to all things IR and endovascular. I'm Chris Beck and I'll be your host today. I'm a private practice interventional radiologist based out of New Orleans, Louisiana. All right, so, so let's talk about some HCC. So we, we talked about some practice development. Can you, can you give us a brief recap of, or for those who didn't listen to the original episode, but how do you approach HCC treatment in terms of, like when you're thinking about local regional therapies, like how do you frame your patients? Well, for one, probably a lot of people who, who come out of fellowship are going to be coming from, from places that are transplant centers. And the interesting thing is that you have to understand that has a selection bias for the patient population that, for HCC specifically. You know, you're going to be seeing people who probably were diagnosed in the community and then were referred. And you might, you're probably also going to see earlier stage disease. So one of the things I quickly understood, you know, when I moved to private practice was that that type of thing went out the window. And that not everybody also, not every patient wants to go to a transplant center, specifically if they're, you know, if they're far away. And a lot of these patients also don't have the greatest insurance. So, so the way that we originally started is maybe a little bit different than the way I am now. So I was very dogmatic about it in the beginning, you know, and I, and I think it's good to be that way, but to also step back and understand the realities of your of your community. So for example, you know, I still evaluate people from Milan criteria. I know the different transplant centers that are around us and I know the, you know, which ones do extend in Milan. But when it comes to, you know, how we deal with HCC, I think of it a little bit more from a, you know, being involved on a level that is more than just the guy that's going to do a chemo embo or a Y90 or an ablation. I think about it from the standpoint, particularly nowadays, that a lot of medical oncologists are involved in the HCC space. So that's where like the concept of, of doing biopsies, of steering patients towards imaging. So one of the things that really gets me going down here is that every, every cancer patient gets a PET scan. And that's you know likely because our medical oncologists own most of the PET scanners in the community. So an HCC will come and they'll have a PET scan. So we now have a GI tumor board that meets once a week, and that's where our HCC patients are presented. And I will steer them towards more appropriate imaging. And I think it's pretty clear based on the AASLD guidelines as well as EASL that the patients need a triple phase CT or a you know an MRI. And you know, and then when it comes to biopsy, I'm also a little bit more dogmatic about it. I mean, if they tell me the patient has Hep C and has an elevated AFP, and then we see their MRI or their CT, and they've got an enhancing lesion with washout, you know, I kind of say, look, this is an HCC. But not all of our imaging places are that great. And I also don't necessarily want to subject 
a patient who already had a PET scan and all this other stuff to a whole bunch of things like, you know, send them to this county to get a good quality MRI or have them pay this copay. So, you know, for example, that case I was talking about earlier that happened on Friday, this patient, all they have is a PET. I'm positive it's an HCC. It's not within transplant criteria. Fine, I'll do the biopsy. And why am I doing the biopsy? Well, because this medical oncologist is interested in immunotherapy for this patient, right? Sure. And they're not so sure because the radiologist that read the PET scan, you know, kind of didn't really say it's an HCC. They just call it a liver mass. They want to be able to have a conversation with that patient. So before I start slamming them with, you know, like, well, you know, look at your NCCN guidelines. It should be liver-directed therapy. You know, they might not even know BCLC, you know, that, that kind of stratification of patients. So before I start hitting them up with that, I kind of negotiate a little bit like, okay, well, you know, what are we going to do with this person? So let me, let me, yeah, yeah, let me stop ahead. you real quick though, Justin, are, are most of your referrals from, for HCC, did, and did they kind of come to you originally as like a biopsy for HCC or, or I guess, are they getting referred for medical oncology primarily? It's a little bit of both. I mean, so we've trained our medical oncologists, so they, you know, they pretty much will knee jerk do it, but I've had, you know, I've read them, you know, like I'll try to hit the list and grab the MRIs and stuff like that. So I've gotten them from diagnostic imaging. I've gotten them from, you know, like liver mass consult for a patient that shows up in the hospital with abdominal pain. And we're, you know, we get consulted for a biopsy, which by the way, I should back up and say, so our nurse practitioners, and at one point it was me, but we don't, I won't just do a biopsy. That patient will be seen. There'll be a consult. Yes, it's a procedure that takes me five minutes to do. But I still, we still get a note in there because that's an ENM code that you bill for. But also, that's what starts to craft the dialogue towards, you know, what type of interventions could we offer? I've had numerous patients who we have basically gotten an embolization or an ablation or something out of them because it started off as a biopsy consult. So, yeah. so, uh, well, so that's like the was- one. Yep. So what I was going to say about that is I think that's really important to drill down on. It goes back to our original point that when you get an inpatient consult, even if you know you're going to do this case, a lot of times there's a lot of value in going to see the patient, even if you know you're going to do the biopsy and laying out a treatment plan that then plugs you later than sending that patient on the right pathway or the pathway that you believe to be the right pathway. But but continue. Yeah, no, 100 percent. Just to add to that, don't assume that you just because you dictate that plan into PACs that anyone's ever going to read that. The EMR is more important to 90% of the clinicians than is the, you know, than is PACS. So if, you know, if they're looking through like all the imaging that's happened to a patient, yeah, they might open the MRI report and read that. But then if they see like liver biopsy, they, they'll probably just be like, whatever, I don't really care about, you know what I mean? They'll skip it. So if I you totally don't have agree. a note in there, you know, if you have a note that says IR consult, and by the way, our notes we actually had everything. So, you know, for Jayco, everybody should be doing an immediate post-operative note for all procedures that are done. So we actually titled ours differently. So we had the EMR make it IR IPON. So all of our stuff has a label to it as being interventional radiology. Our progress notes, for example, say IR progress note. Our consultation says IR consultation. I know that seems very subtle, but I think people who might be like remotely interested in what you're going to say will open that up. If it's just buried in there, it's not going to stand out and that's going to be an issue. Um, getting back to the HCC thing, 
we we have GI, we have primary care, and we have medical oncology, and they refer and we see these patients in our clinic. Like I said, we screen for Milan, but you know, a good number of my patients are are advanced. I, I'd probably say more than fifty percent are beyond Milan criteria, mm-hmm. and it might be for a couple different reasons. It might be um, age related. It might be size related. It might be like kind of a um, you know a staging of their disease type uh, related thing, like i.e. they've got extra you know extra hepatic mets. But I still do make the recommendation, like, hey, go to Tampa and see you know this person or wherever. And Tampa, um, by the way, is, is that's your nearest transplant center, I assume. Yeah, so that's our okay, nearest transplant great. center. But that's about an hour and a half trip. And a lot of times, you know, like, you know, you look at the patient, you're like, this is never going to happen. So the the next thing is, is that I bring cases to tumor board. So this is another thing that I've noticed. And I, I, I don't know why we don't do this, because a lot of times radiology, I mean, it's embedded in tumor board. But why aren't we providing the cases for tumor board? So, for example... If a medical oncologist sent me the patient, but I noticed that it's not in tumor board, I'll send them a quick text like, hey, you know, I just saw blah, blah, blah. I'm going to add them to tumor board. Done, you know, and they might be like, oh, yeah, that's a good idea. You know, and I, so I don't want to piss them off by having it show up in tumor board and then go, hey, that's my patient. Right, right, but right. Then, of course. You know, for the GIs and for the, for the primary care people, they love that, you know, and not, on, not only that, you know, like when it comes for us in tumor board, whoever has added the case to tumor board, you have to present the patient. So there you need a note. And, you know, there you need to say things like, what's their ECOG status? You know, I think I, I I don't think I know I introduced BCLC to our medical oncologists, you know, believe it or not, that's not their, their language, but I know NCCN too. So I kind of work back and forth. But so as you present the case, you know, you kind of drop all these different things. So if you don't, if you don't talk about performance status, if you don't talk about child pew status, maybe WHO or, you know, like where they might fit in the paradigm for NCCN, you're probably going to be dead on arrival. If you just go up there and you're like, oh, and, and, and expect the diagnostic radiologist to present an HCC case, that then they're going to be like, oh, where's the IR guy? You're totally, you're, you're screwed. You know, you're, you're, you're screwing yourself. So you have to learn the art of making people do what you want them to do without overtly, you know what I mean? Without overtly hitting them over the head with it. Yeah. It's how to, how to win friends and influence people. But, but, you know, but to your credit, I mean, I think there is a lot of, of value add in terms of like interventional radiologists, not just showing up to tumor board and, and then hoping a case gets presented that you can weigh in on, but adding the tumor board cases yeah. yourself. And, and also, I mean, like, so I've also, I've added, I've added tumor board cases that either patients who are on, like, you know, before uh, treatment, I've also added tumor board patients, like, that are two years down the road and maybe have recurred. Uh, totally you know, agree. Metastatic. Yep. And and people love that. And, and people, it's it's a very face-forward thing and gets them thinking about interventional radiology and how, I mean, it's just, it's a, it's a stage for you to show that, you know, you're also clinical and then also give you a chance to uh, show the other physicians what things are being offered at your institution. Definitely. And that's, that's another thing that I would put out there. So, to talk about the paradigm, you know, we still do ablation for HCC. You know, it's it's very interesting how they're, they're in some institution, there seems to be like this migration away from some of the tried and true therapies for HCC, you know, for and basically I'm just saying from like ablation taste to Y90, like kind of some places, everything's a Y90. And I think that's somewhat institutionally driven. Although I do think there's some data that's compelling to to suggest it, 
But if you go to your tumor board and you don't follow some of the stuff that's written in there, or at least discuss it and have a working knowledge of it, you know, like, like I desperately wanted to get a Y90 program going here and, and we've got a pretty robust one. But there was a period of time when, you know, I was trying to grab patients where the medical oncologist would be like, you know, I think their flu shot, you know, their, their flu test was positive. Uh, should we do Y90 for that, Justin? You know, and they're like tongue in cheeking <laughs> it. But it's true. You know, you, you, you can oversell yourself a little, a little much. So, for sure. you know, so for example, so the paradigm for HCC, if we have somebody who's like, you know, 78, you know, you'll say, look, you got a three centimeter HCC. Like I actually have one of these right now um, that's, that's in the hopper. I'll say something like, look, you know, your, your medical oncologist is interested in us potentially getting some tissue. You know, you've got this one tumor and there's usually a lot of other factors involved in it. Like maybe they're chronic AFib and they're on Eliquis. They might've had a, a, you know, a, a different cancer. Like I had a guy who had multiple myeloma and then had an incident, you know, he's like kind of a drinker, had a incidental liver finding. It turns out to be an HCC. So those people are probably not going to ever be transplanted. And I kind of have an an understanding with the transplant centers, like what's happening. But, you know, nevertheless, so, you know, we'll start with something like ablation. It's easy to do. It's cheap. It's effective. And it's, it's going to go toe to toe with your SBRT sort of radonk things. You know, I mean, sure. it's, it's out there. I mean, there's good data on, you know, two centimeter or less HCCs. You're curative. You know what I mean? You're, you're right up there with resection. As things get a little bit larger, we have done the walk away from chemoembolization and gone more towards radioembolization. And the reason for that comes down purely to what, you know, the Northwestern group showed in the premier trial, which basically was that we have seen the, the TTP, you know, the time to progression interval sure. be much longer for Y90. And I think some of that has to do with how we do the embolization in terms of getting those little micromets that you don't necessarily see. And then on top of that, just having a little bit more of a response. I mean, we do now target gray using a partition model. So dosimetry is something that I really dig into the weeds on when it comes to Y90. And I think we're actually reaching a point where we have a better understanding of it and more people are buying into, you don't just prescribe the highest activity possible. That, right. you know, you're trying to reach certain targets. And, I, and then, and then to, to your point, Chris, I don't just do that stuff and not represent it. You know, I kind of keep the medical oncologist in the loop as to what we're doing. And then lastly, as it pertains to HCC, you know, we try to engage ourselves in some of the trials. So we're part of the resin registry. We were part of, you know, when it was Surefire, Surefire's trial, which, mm -hmm. um, which is on taste. And, a little bit, I guess, you know, some of the people would say, well, you know, how could you get away from taste? We are, we, we, we do do taste ablate and, uh, and we've had great success with that. Usually we're doing that combo because that, I, it, to me, that's sort of a wash when it comes to a good segmental Y90, but well, so it's usually actually, an insurance so, issue. Well, so actually this is what I, one of the questions I wanted to ask you. Um, this seems like this is a deviation from where you were two years ago when we last had the show. Um, yeah, it is. Okay. So can you kind of talk us about like through that evolution of, I mean, I'm not saying, you, like you said, you were just saying that you, you haven't given up on taste ablation, but you, you've kind of migrated your practice in a way. Was it, was it driven by literature? Was it personal experience, new IRs coming on or a combination of effects? 
I think it's a little bit of both. I think yeah. some of it is literature. Some of it is the addition of certain technologies into our practice. So we now, we're a pretty heavy microwave place and we're not, we're not really pinned down by how many probes we use and that type of thing. So I'm pretty confident now that I can ablate a three centimeter, four centimeter, even five centimeter HTC. Now I don't do a five centimeter HTC, but if I see a three centimeter HTC and I get two probes in there and not for any reason, but we, we happen to use a new wave system, I'm pretty confident that I'm going to get rid of that. And then on top of that, I feel a little bit more comfortable about grabbing some tissue if I'm doing an ablation. So to me, it's sort of a compromise. You know, the, the medical oncologists are very interested, at least where I am, they're very interested in tissue for HCC. And we have had some patients who have had these mixed cholangios, which are, which are really scary when you think about it, because sure. the cholangio pathway is a totally different pathway than is the HCC pathway. Not maybe so much for us as IRs, but for their medical, the systemic options, it's a huge deal, right? So, so, so I think for small HCCs, we kind of, I, I don't buy into the Y90 thing. I mean, I, I, I do for location reasons, and sometimes I'm just sort of feeling radioembolization, you know, because I think, well, you know, I see it and it looks like it's three centimeters on the MR. And then, you know, you, you, you know, you, you do a mapping and you see that it's actually a lot bigger because I've That's had right. that happen yeah. to me a lot. And sometimes on your CTs or it, definitely not with our MRIs, but sometimes on your CTs, you can see a nice feeding vessel. And then there's right. certain things that, yeah. you know, the force kind of steers you in one way or the other. I, I, I get right. it. I'm worried, though, a little bit. I mean, I don't know if you've heard about recent stuff, you know, in terms of the radiation oncologists are fighting this a little bit. It's almost like capitated payments for for uh, radiation therapy, you know, because like it can kind of be open ended right now. You know, it could be, you know, like five weeks of radiation or, you know, whatever, however many days SBRT. So there's some like political influence there. I'm worried that if we're not careful about making everything Y90, that we're going to get we're going to get capitated in a, in a sense, you know. So I am cognizant of like what, you know, like, let's just make sure we're not Y90ing everything. I do think that there is some data to support, you know, in the transplant centers that if you have, you know, more durable necrosis and you can show it, and there is literature to show this, that you have, you know, better, you know, total necrosis or almost complete necrosis, and the patient then goes on a transplant that they're going to do better. Right. That doesn't necessarily influence me working in a non-transplant setting, but I mean, this, the principle is there. It's like, yes. if I can get durable necrosis, then I'm probably also going to extend my time to progression interval. And that's really what we're doing. The other thing is, is that I'm really interested right now, and this was talked about a little bit by Alex Kim um, at that summit, but on the combination of Y90 and immunotherapy. And I think that that is at least marginally exciting to my medical oncologist. So, you know, they know that the checkmate trials, you know, they failed to to reach a statistically significant OS, but they did show, you know, you know, kind of a anywhere from a 15 to 30% response rate, which is really exciting to them because that they're well tolerated than the multi-kinase inhibitors like serafinib or lenvatinib. But um, you know, I think that if you start to say, well, we're let's do this together, you know, they're they're more interested in it. And you know, I think doing Y90 and kind of and, and kind of saying like, well, we're going to do radiation combined with a systemic therapy is a little bit more palatable to them. 
versus the way they look at it and they say, okay, well, you know, if you're doing ablation, it's sort of like, you know, it's like doing surgery. Right, right, right. And, and that, that's actually one of the things that I really am dealing with right now is I have a couple of surgeons who are extremely aggressive, you know, and they will wedge out just about anything, it seems. And so that's my next, that's sort of like my, my goal of, you know, I'm going to let 2020 go away, but 2021, it's going to be like, how do I convince them a little bit that we might Y90 someone prior to surgery and do a biology test to their disease? You know what I mean? Like, like keep the disease in situ, but treat it, you know, pretty aggressively with Y90 and not have them go to, not saying they don't ever go to resection, but let's just make sure they don't develop like lymphadenopathy because we've had a few of those cases and I feel a little bit like surgeons get a pass on progression of disease after surgery and we don't, you know what I mean? Like I, I totally agree with that. I, and, and I've also seen that in, in kind of like when dealing with surgeon versus us and, and that with IR, it's like, oh, it's a failure. And it's actually, it's funny that you mentioned that. I didn't know if it was just me feeling it, you know, like, or, you know, being self-conscious about it, or if that's like, if that perception was kind of real, uh, with the medonks, radonks. Well, look at, look at, I mean, I, I'm, I'm sort of in my mind writing a protocol for immunotherapy and Y90. And I actually started writing the proposal last night. It boggles my mind that, you know, the FDA and sort of, you know, Jimmy Carter, all these like highly publicized like miracle drugs that is immunotherapy are touted as being uh, number one being fast tracked to approval number two being touted as like the cure-all but the response it, all they're reporting is response rates and they're not meeting statistical significance in overall survivals compared to serafinib yet we do a trial like the sarah trial or servanib and yeah we don't have statistical significance so therefore it's a failure you know, but it's like, wait a minute, let's, let's step back and look at these patients. For the most part, in the immunotherapy trials, you're taking child PUA, uh, patients with no varices, you know, they're like the best of the best. Right. Obviously, they're not resectable. And, you know, you're putting them through these, these regimens. If you're taking the best of the best, and you're not getting statistical significant OS, like what, you know, like, why is it that we can have, you know, albeit a small trial, like, the dosisphere trial or a trial like Sarah that has its imperfections to it, but then look at it and say, but at least, you know, we're achieving survivals, for example, in the dosisphere of, you know, 26 months in pretty big HCCs. Now, I think there's some selection bias in there and there's some stuff that we've got in there too, but for sure, I, I, I don't, I don't get why our research threshold seems to be so much higher. The bar is so much higher than is for surgical uh, literature and for medical oncology literature. So that's a good question. That's actually, a, we could do a whole podcast on that. Oh, you definitely yeah. could. And I yeah. think I give credit to Riyadh Salem. He talked about this before and he's talked about it probably for the last decade is that like, is really OS like an attainable metric for HCC considering that it's got so much stuff going on, you know, with it and with, and each patient is so much different than is a, say a patient who's got colorectal cancer, you know, right. Completely different or, or breast cancer. Yeah, exactly. Um, so hold on. So also I wanted to frame the discussion of, of how you approach HCC. And this is something I heard you mention on the last podcast in terms of you treat some patients like HCC is behaving like metastatic disease. And there's other HCC that very much is behaving like 
within or close to Milan criteria. Can you talk a little bit about that? Well, yeah, I think that's kind of the way that traditionally I cut up Y90 versus taste, you know, versus ablation was, you know, we get a lot of people with port, with port, macrovascular invasion, whether it be portal vein or hepatic vein, we get a lot of people with giant tumors and a lot of people with bilobar disease. And I think it's because a lot of times these NASH or NAFLD patients or, you know, the alcoholic cirrhotics, like they hide it a little bit more. So, you know, you get this like, you know, 75 year old with like pretty bad HCC and you go to yourself like, well, how the hell was this not found? And it's like, well, they had a little transient increase in their LFTs and whatnot. And so I treat that patient with those bigger lesions a little bit more aggressively, like saying, okay, my plan is to put a, put a smackdown on this tumor, you know, with something like Y90 and then, and then work with my medical oncologist to get them on something systemic versus if you have a patient that's got one little lesion, you know, I mean, I'll, I'll present them in tumor board but we're just going to do an ablation and be on our way with it. You know, and, and sure. we might obtain tissue. And then we say, I'm like, look, you're our patient now. We're going to follow you for, you know, the next, you know, probably at least two years with serial scanning and that type of thing. And, uh, and AFP if it's expressing it. Gotcha. So I, maybe that, you know, I, I don't know exactly what I, what I was talking about back then, but I think that's probably what I was alluding to was my practice in academia our bread and butter was like, you know, five or six chemoembos a week for patients waiting to be transplanted. And half the time they'd be transplanted within two to six months of us doing the treatment. And it was like, you know, you could almost wonder like what, what that, like, what was the point? You know, like really was their disease going to go out of control? Were they going to get kicked off the list? And I understand, you know, now the lists are a little bit harder and whatnot, but my experience was sometimes I'd chemoembo somebody and they'd be transplanted within six weeks. And it was like, Really, did I did I really need to do that? Right. Did you move the needle there? Right. <laughs> did you move the needle at all? Versus nowadays, I'm seeing patients who will, will, you know, you say like, look, you know, I'd like to refer you up to a transplant center. And they say, well, I'm not going to, you know, I'm not doing that. And so now you got to start thinking a little bit more broadly. And you have to think a lot about how you're going to work with your medical oncologist. And, you know, and I am, I'm encouraged by, you know, some of the systemic stuff. I think it's, it's a little... It's a little daunting, particularly when you see a lesion that's not really expressing PDL1. And we even have, you know, we've gone toe to toe with a trial that was a dual immunotherapy, a PDL1 plus a CTLA4 for first line, you know, and that it, it was called like the Hermes trial or something like that. And I'm like, wow, we're going to go that down that route now when we've got, you know, people in the world still doing alcohol ablation, <laughs> you know, so. <laughs> I kind of try to frame all of it in being up to date and, and being, you know, kind of a doctor practicing cancer in America with also being, you know, being practical. Sure. Absolutely. So one of the things that I wanted to ask you about in terms of when you're talking about radioembolization of HCC, do you have a, do you or, or your group have a preference as to whether you're using glass or resin? Well, I have a bias towards resin. I've been using resin since the beginning and to not get into it, but I mean, like when I started doing Y90, glass was, was, was owned by Nordian and they didn't really have a sales force. And so when I moved into private practice for a place that had 
never had Y90 before, it was a lot easier to get an FDA approved product, you know, in place than it was to do glass. Now, having said that, we now have both. I think you can make compelling arguments that really they both work. Um, sure. My thing is like, for example, in the dosisphere trial, and I've yet, I've only been able to really read the abstract. Uh, I don't know if the full paper has been published yet, but when, as a person who's practiced a lot of Y90, I know for a fact they have to have used multiple vials treating 10 centimeter tumors to get the outcomes that they're getting. Because to me, there's good, pay, there's good evidence and it comes out of the Sarah trial that coverage and dose. So there is a threshold dose. I'll acknowledge that. I'm not, I'm not sure what I know what that is, but I treat it as 200 gray. But coverage is equally as important as is uh, what your dose is. So I think, I think the legacy trial blurs that a little bit. And I, don't, I, I personally wouldn't bring that trial up in my tumor board because I don't really think it applies that widely. I know it's being touted as kind of like, well, now it's 410 gray. But you got to look at the weeds there. The average tumor size was like 2.8 centimeters. So that, and I know it went up to eight centimeters. And then the patients who had the best outcomes were ones that went under resection and transplant. That's just not my community. So when I look at doing a Y90 and wanting to, to hit a threshold dose, I feel that I get better coverage with resin. And I also think it's just easier for us to do. So like, what do I mean by that? Well, at the moment now, from a resin standpoint, I can order the dose of resin at the time that I see the patient in clinic. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's huge. It was never like that. Even when I was in academics, it wasn't like that in the first five years that we were practicing here. So basically, I see a patient, I schedule them for a mapping and a treatment, like, and they're scheduled you know, as they're leaving my clinic. And that never was like that. So, so you can effectively treat people within a week and get them back to their medical oncologist. And why is that? Well, it's because of, you know, resin rolling out this flex dosing thing. And again, I think because I'm a proctor, I'm biased, and I probably got the flex dosing a lot, you know, a lot earlier than a lot of other people did. And then on top of that, I knew what challenges would need to happen in order to have flex dosing. And what I'm alluding to there is that you have to amend your RAM license, which is your radioactive materials license. So, you know, that may be a little bit different than your garden variety community practice. That's like, what, you know, like RAM right, license, right. you know, I'm not even an authorized user. But having said that, once I, once we got those hurdles combined, there's really a crossover between the two different devices. So I think it's totally fine. Like I, I, I met with Austin in, uh, in Huntsville, Alabama, and, you know, we kind of agreed to disagree about the two different products, but what he's doing with glass is basically the same thing that I'm doing with resin. The difference is, is that for smaller HCCs, I might be more inclined to either ablate that, or we will use glass in those situations. And the glass that we use is we use the three GBQ vial and we use it on a Wednesday. So we sort oh, of, wow. pl we plan it all out, you know, like. Yeah. So that way it follows in line with what our resin is, you know, okay. so that we, we're getting these things done quickly. Okay, that's great. And, and, there's, and there's a lot to be said for, at least this has been my experience in, in the community. There's, there's like the high-minded ivory tower academic way. And then there's also where the rubber meets the road in terms of 
logistics with scheduling, you know, physician availability, how far is the patient coming? I mean, these these yeah, are all like real world definitely. things that have to be answered. And then sometimes things are But then even, or, you know, even go back to, you know, for us to keep our glass program going, our IRB is actually like they want our data, you know, like you oh, got to wow. do it. Yeah, I know. Like, you know, the and the reps will be like, oh, it's not that big of a deal. Well, it's like still something I had to do. You know, sure. I had to go back and kind of send it to them. And, you know, we have these little little ladies who are retired who, you know, they I think they just like to sort of either give the doctors a hard time or, <laughs> or they want to hear from us, you know, and so we have to go up there and present it. And I, I think I personally think and I know that Boston Scientific is going to push to get an indication for HCC for glass, which will be a good thing. I think it'll be a good thing for both. But, you know, I mean, again, we, we could do a whole po- podcast on dosimetry You're right. because I think it's a really misunderstood um, concept. Because let me just tag the last thing that, that, that we've done is that we have started incorporating post-dosimetry analysis through voxel-based dosimetry software. So I now can show you cases where I'm reaching the threshold of, you know, 200 gray, 400 gray in the software. And I can feel pretty good about the fact that, you know, people say, oh, well, you need to get more radiation and resin isn't hot enough. Well, you know, that's not really accurate. It's, you know, yeah, if you're trying to do BSA with a day of calibration segmental style dose, and what that basically means is that you're pulling the most embolic uh, resin vial that that exists, and you're going to try to fit it into a 200 cc, you know, portion of liver, like, yeah, you're not going to be able to do that. But if you do a three-day flex dose, which is now, you know, is a 7.2 GBQ vial and you pulling, say, a GBQ or two GBQs, that's about 8 million spheres or 10 million spheres, you will be able to put that into 200 cc's and you will achieve, you know, pretty high uh, absorbed doses. I'm not a big dose hawk. I am, I'm starting to buy into it that there is a threshold for HCC and it may be higher than metastatic disease. Mm-hmm. And I think that the I think that the glass papers have done a good job of showing us that, but it's not like it's like you can only use one product to make that happen. Yeah, I think we really are scratching the surface in terms of talking about dosimetry. Like as you said, often misunderstood, but then I think also on the other end, also maybe underappreciated, like maybe oversimplified for some. But big time, yeah. Like you know, you know, I mean, again, not to get off into this tangent, but. You know, I, I proctored a guy who, you know, he had done glass for colorectal, which, you know, I think like that's operating a little outside the sphere too. But so he had done a low bar glass treatment with six GBQ. And so I was like, well, how did you do the dosimetry? And basically he, first off, he didn't really quite know. But then the second (laughs) thing was that, you know, the only way he could have achieved it was with, you know, at most an 8 million sphere vial. And if you put that into 1500 cc right lobe, you're just not going to have the, you know, you're not going to have the concentration of clusters of Y90 particles to make a difference. And again, I, I, I actually give credit to the glass people. It came out of Hopkins with Clifford Weiss and, um, and Matt Dreher. Those are like the two authors that I know. Matt was a PhD at NIH when I was up in DC. And basically they showed, yeah, more sphere count gives you a more homogeneous dose distribution. Now, if you, you know, if you put that all into normal liver, that's going to be a big problem. But if you can put that into an area that you want to target, then you're going to get, you're going to get more even kill. And I think that, I think a lot of people have experienced that, that yeah, for three centimeter HCC, a really hot glass vial 
works really well. And I, and I wouldn't disagree with that. But, you know, like we were talking about before, my practice, I've had a number of patients with, you know, macrovascular portal vein invasion, huge tumors who we've kept alive for two years with, you know, Y90 plus some systemic therapy, you know, two, two and a half years. These are people that on the BCLC side of things, you know, should be dead in six months. And I think that's a testament to how we practice our Y90 and how we integrate it with all the other therapies. Excellent. So Justin, kind of wrapping things up and getting some final thoughts, are there any, uh, we actually talked about a lot of these uh, topics, but are there any topics that are very exciting that you think are going to be coming down the pipe in terms of five, five years or maybe the next decade that are, are personally exciting as far as like incorporating into your HCC practice? Well, yeah, I think that we need to get ourselves into the drug delivery world. And there may be some interest in administering drug, say things like immunotherapy arterially to avoid first pass. And, you know, I, I don't know if I'm off the ranch on this, but it, it's not a secret that Surefire, which is now Trisalis, and they have their Trinav. They actually bought a drug company because their new CEO, she came from pharma. And I actually had an opportunity to have a conversation with her. And she is, she's really bullish on drug delivery as being, a, you know, IR being involved in that, you know, not just like you put a port in and you, you know, you infuse it systemically right. and then it has all the first pass. So they purchased a drug company that has a compound SD101. And I don't know all the specifics about it, but they are starting a uveal, mel uveal melanoma trial. And it's incorporating sort of how, you know, their sort of take on, you know, delivery, arterial delivery using the uh, Trinav. I think that there's a lot of opportunity for other drugs in this, you know, and it could be immunotherapies. And then, as I was alluding to before, I'm actually trying to do my own little, I don't know what you want to call it, phase one, phase two trial, combining some of the stuff we do with immunotherapy. Because I think, I think we can accentuate the abscopal effect, you know, of immunotherapy. I, I guess it's not abscopal if it's immunotherapy, but you know what I mean? You can accentuate yeah. the antigen pre presentation of tumor to the immune system. And I, I mean, I hope, you know, I, there's some positive and negative trials in that area, right, but I right. hope that we can do that stuff. I think that's, I think that's where we have to position ourselves. And that's again, why. You know, we started off the conversation like you got to be reading these papers. You know, if you haven't read, you know, this will be my PSA to anybody <laughs> who does listen to this. If you haven't read New England Journal of Medicine article, which was the, I can't remember what they called the trial, but it was is the Atezo Bev trial. Just type that in, you'll see it. If you haven't read that and are somewhat knowledgeable about it, you know, I don't see how you can call yourself like an HCC expert because that's where it's moving. And you need, you need to be able to be literate in that stuff. All right. Well, one of the things you actually touched on is, is if we mentioned a lot of trials in this, I'll, I'll get with Justin offline and try and get uh, the links put up in some of our show notes. So guys, I think that about wraps things up. Justin, any final thoughts? No, thanks a lot. I think this is a great platform. You know, I see him a lot posted on LinkedIn and whatnot. And I think it's really, it's really great that you guys have done it. What's also really great, you know, I'm just going to, kiss your guys butts a little bit but you're all yeah, young we appreciate that we'll make sure you oh, yeah yeah that. right yeah. i you know yeah that's just what how you like get yourself on additional podcasts as you uh you know you <laughs> but um no but you know it's like really it you know really is gonna be largely the people in the community the younger 
IRs who come out and really kind of push things forward. And, you know, I don't like to say that, um, you know, don't like to think like, okay, 10 years out and I'm, you know, I'm already like hanging up the spurs, but like in our own practice, you know, it's, it's really the younger guys that are going to, that pick up the torch and move forward. Like, you know, I'm kind of now really involved. I, I actually just became the medical director for our practice. So I'm involved in like all these other things going on. And that's, that's natural. That's what happens. But I really think that, you know, making information like this available to people, what you guys are doing is, is hugely important. And I hope people listen to these things and then go, man, I want to, you know, I want to go read that paper and, and get myself educated or whatever it might be and think about things in different ways. So man, thanks for that opportunity. Yeah, absolutely. That's the hope. All right. To our audience, thank you guys for listening. We covered a good topic for today. If you guys enjoyed the podcast but want more, check out the show notes on this episode. Those can be found at www.backtable.com. We'll have a brief summary of the episode and links to any articles which were referenced during the show. If you enjoyed the podcast and want to support the show, here are two easy ways. First, take one second and press the subscribe button on whatever platform you're listening on. This helps platforms like iTunes or Spotify or whatever know that you, our audience, value what we're doing and and you're interested in getting our latest content as we're putting it out. Second, if you're getting a lot of value from these podcasts, please go to iTunes, leave us a short written review. This helps us in a lot of different ways. Plus, we'd love to get the feedback. That about wraps things up. We'll see you next time on the Back to Go podcast.